The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. We are live. You know... Family calls me today. What's up, Joe? Family calls me today and their juvenile son is facing life in prison for a homicide. And this kid shouldn't be charged as an adult. And I studied the case for a minute and I see an angle. And the family can't afford me. And I told them that I would help the public defender on the case. And I realized that this shit is getting too personal. EMU is too fucking personal. Grady L. It's too personal. Bobby Reyes will always be too personal. Sometimes I just wish I could have an average, normal life and just go through the motions and be happy, go into a ball game and make a little bit of money, but I can't. And I'm seeing all this injustice. I'm seeing people wrongfully charged. I'm seeing politics at play. And I'm being asked to be part of the system. And I won't run for attorney general because I don't want to make 110 grand a year. And I don't know if that means I'm part of the problem. I'm just kind of lost right now. I feel like I'm caught between Lore Road and Willow Avenue. I'm out of it, and it's 10.33, and I worked all day, went to the gym twice, went home, read to my child, put my dog out and fed him and played with him, rubbed my wife's foot, watched her go to sleep, and I came back to the office to work on this case. And as I'm reviewing this case, I found a hole. And my life is about finding holes, sneaking through to find justice. And I forgot the intro. I'm Bill Amadeo from McNass and Amadeo and Grable and Associates. And I, I don't care if it's out of order tonight. I know I got to get content done. And I know it's Friday night at 1034. And I'm here. But I was listening to the radio tonight, going from court to court, this afternoon, I should say, and Coheed and Cambria came on. And this one song, A Favor House Atlantic, was blaring. This was the first song I ever heard when I came to Michigan. And for some reason, it made me realize I'm at this crossroads, right? I'm just there. There's no control about it. And professionally, 
I am so goddamn productive right now. Like, top of my game. But there's an anger with it. There's hostility. It made me think about caste systems, guys. And I want people I care about tonight to really lock in. Because the caste system of our youth, it was all bullshit. The people who wrote that script were full of shit. And what they wanted to do with their little bit of power was hold you down. And sadly, many of them succeeded. Because some of you believe what they told you when you were 14, 15, and 16 years old. And some of these people at 14 and 15 and 16 years old had a little bit of power. And they're trying to cling to that. And when they try to cling to it, they try to put you down. And my one request tonight is that you don't let them get you. And I want to go back and tell you a story about Lancaster City High School. I want to break some things down I saw. Because some of that shit doesn't leave you, you know what I mean? It doesn't. And I realized, being a child of the ghetto, which is what I am, let's just be real, matter how hard I worked, or what grades I got, or how I looked, we were viewed as white trash. And in the eyes of many, I will always be deemed white trash. It doesn't matter how many jury trials I win or how much money I make. I'm still going to be Billy Amadeo from Willow Avenue to many people. And that's okay. The key here, what's separating me from some people, is that while that frustration and anger can still be there, you can use it to empower yourself. But sadly, many of us, and there's two people in particular I'm really focused on right now. And I want you guys to, if you never listened to me before, listen to me tonight. And understand the clicks were bullshit then. And you gotta be smart to know they're bullshit now. I mean, there's one thing I hate about social media, and hey, you know what? Social media has made me a lot of money. But it gives assholes a platform to still be assholes. And the people that were deemed more powerful than you at 16, you gotta realize the game's changed. Some of us haven't realized that. We go back to AC High. And there were four cities that went to school at AC High. And I want to talk about who we were. And what was expected of us. Because whether we realize it or not, we were grouped together based on social economics, based on the color of our skin, based on where our family status was in life. 
let's start with Atlantic City. Atlantic City in the 90s was rough. Ranked the seventh most dangerous city in the country. And it was poor. It was really poor. And you know, Joe Bear, I want you to know something, man. I know people talk a lot of shit right now, but you're a man among men. Don't let people who have nothing going on in their lives affect you. And if those people are tuned in right now, you know where I stand on this issue. So deal with it and say what you will about me. I don't really care at this point. The Atlantic City kids, we were rough. We were really rough around the edges, you know. It was a survival tactic. And the problem with these cities we're going to talk about is instead of being unified, we divided within the city. The black kids were with the black kids. The Spanish kids were with the Spanish kids. The Asian kids were with the Asian kids. And the few white kids were kind of with the white kids. But then there was this divide and conquer thing. The one thing I could say about all of us were we were poor. And sometimes we were so poor we didn't realize we were poor. I lived next to Pitney Village. And that was a war zone. And Stanley Holmes Village and Back Maryland and Virginia Avenue Courts. These were places even worse than where I lived. But inside this little two-mile radius, if you would, was a complete war zone. And anybody that tells you it wasn't a war zone either didn't live it or had blocked shit out. Let's keep that in mind. So the Atlantic City kids, we were the poor kids. And for the most part, the minorities, I had the pleasure of being Caucasian in an all-black and Spanish community, so that made things doubly worse kind of explains a few things today with me if you know me but you know okay so ac was rough and if you weren't rough enough you'd get run over but you also have to be careful not to get killed and that happened to a few of us but within atlantic city we had our brilliant kids, we had our athletes, we had the cute kids, you had this, you had that. But it was tougher to show your attributes being an Atlantic City kid. Ventnor was different. Ventnor was the suburbs. And not the overly wealthy suburbs, I would say middle class, upper middle class. <laughs> this was white. And the Ventnor kids had this aura of confidence, if you would. Their family's frustration is they didn't have as much money as some other communities, which we'll get to in a minute. But they knew they were better than the Atlantic City kids, at least based on economics. And the Ventnor kids hung out mostly with the Margate kids. The Margate kids were the wealthy kids, most of them. They had money, multi-million dollar homes, and their families 
were all <coughs> people in the know, people you would read about in the Atlantic City Press. These were the chosen ones, if you would. And the Ventner kids and the Morgate kids would hang out together. They'd hook up together. They were, you know, a team, if you would. And that's what they were. And they kind of looked down upon the Atlantic City kids, but they would do it behind their back, and it was really interesting. I mean, Ventner and Morgan kids, if I had to put a word on it, they were assholes. And that, I'm stereotyped, because there were some good ones. Scott Zolber may rest in peace, but, I mean, it was such a caste system. And Atlantic City High, while we speak of diversity, let me tell you, the school was segregated. It was segregated based upon economics. They placed the Ventner and Margate kids in classes together. They did everything to protect them from the bad Atlantic City kids. And if you were a white Atlantic City kid in the high classes, well, you were really mocked because you're caught between two worlds. Let me explain those worlds, if it would. Like when you're playing baseball, you're in an advanced placement class, you have to behave a certain way not to get kicked out of there. And the Ventnor Market kids will mock you because you don't have the money for the right clothes and this and that. But when you had to go home on the jitney, then you had to get rough. So it was like being bipolar on a daily basis. And that is one of my angers here tonight. And we'll get into that more when I talk about how this cast is and what broke. Then there was the Brigantine kids. And to stereotype these kids, um, there was identity crisis there. They were, they had more money than the Atlantic City kids, but not as much money as the Ventnor and Margate kids. And the place is really divided, like, Ventnor and Margate went this way, Atlantic City Brigantine went that way. So when they talk about wrong side of the tracks, that really was the, you know, line of demarcation, if you will. Jackson Avenue was Ventnor. Once you went past Jackson, you were kind of in a safe zone, in a wealthier zone, if you would. Lancaster and Brigantine were, you know, white trash or minority trash based on economics. That's how you play that game. And what the Brigantine kids, the ones that were rough, would do is they'd hang out with the Atlantic City kids. Vetner kids and the Margate kids would do that. And we learned this cast, and we learned it from the teachers that were there. you got to remember, most of the high school teachers, I'm not talking about Keith Grazio or Dolores Gandhi, there were some amazing ones. There were a lot of assholes there. They almost, they took the script, right? And with this script, they taught it. And it went like this. Unless you were an amazing athlete, you weren't making it out of Atlantic City. The Vetner kids would have a very nice life in the future. The Margate kids would be the leader of society. Brigantine, you're kind of in the middle there. But you are in a caste system based upon social economics. You are. You just, it is what it is. And the anger came in where I really learned a lot about life. So I learned about brutality in Atlantic City. A little about life at mock trial. At mock trial, and I'm talking about the Elliot Gellers of the world, and if he's watching, Elliot, deal with it, you are an asshole. Probably still are, but I don't know. But the Gellers and the Ben Paloffs and all those people, here you are, 
this white kid from Atlantic City, and you try out for the mock trial team. And the mock trial team was a state-winning team. I mean, these were the law geeks. And when I made that team, there was so much hostility, and I didn't quite get it. And I wanted to quit. And Miss Gandhi, I told that story before, wouldn't let me quit. And it changed my life, thank God. But what mock trial was, in a small microcosm, was me branching out from one situation, which was Brutality Atlantic City, to academic success, which would be Ventnor and Margate. So you were an outsider coming into their world. And then, I mean, arguably I was the most talented one. I mean, I'm the most talented lawyer from that group. I'll put myself against any of them. Look at our resumes. But what Mock Trial did was it gave me an escape route. It showed me there was light at the end of the tunnel. And what so many people from Atlantic City didn't have was that light at the end of the tunnel. We were poor. But Aunt Mare and Mom were harping on me, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And Mock Trial changed it, changed everything for me. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Mock Trial and Keith Graziel taking a shot at me in 1993. But I look at how much shit I had to deal with to break through that chaos system. So I guess what I'm imploring people tonight. is to own the fact that you don't have to break through the chaos system. You could start your own system. You don't have to be there. And I look back, and I won't mention the name, but there was a girl from Margate. By all means, probably the prettiest girl in Margate. And she liked me. And I am a nobody, right? I am a poor white kid. And she's a rich, pretty girl. And this was the type of girl that when she was a junior in high school would be hooking up with college guys and older guys and so on and so forth. But she laid it out for me. She goes, hey, I'm really into you. And we can hang out. But I can't let my friends know I'm hanging out with you. And I'm confused at this point. He said, what do you mean by that? Like, she took a shot. She was courageous in that matter, but she also said, look, I do like you, we can hang out, we can do this, we can do that, but if my friends know I'm hanging with you, we'll be bad for my social status, so we can't do it in public. And I learned that day with the Margate people that it's okay to hook up with the Atlantic City people if you find them physically attractive. But you can't take them to the prom. This kind of angered me, you know, and I, I didn't accept her invitation. Because what that was was a telltale sign of what things were. And if you ever saw the movie Love Story with um, Ryan O'Neill and Ally McCroll, 1970 film, and there's something that's absolutely powerful and intoxicating about that film. Because <clears throat> Ryan O'Neill, who plays Oliver, is a rich kid. He falls for Allie McGraw, who's Jennifer. And Jennifer's a girl from the wrong side of the tracks. <clears throat> and Oliver basically turns his back on his family's money to be with Jennifer. 
it had themes of Romeo and Juliet, if you would. And then Jennifer dies at the age of 24. And at that point with her death, Oliver's family accepts her. And the message there is, you know, sometimes we accept people too late. If you never saw Love Story, I highly recommend it. It was so far advanced and so much ahead of its time, but it just makes so much sense. If Oliver sowed his wild oats with Jen, that's cool. Pretty girl in college, go hook up with her, right? But you couldn't bring her home to the wealthy family. And what I took from that is we just can't like who we like and be who we are because of this goddamn caste system. And as I'm playing with the criminal justice system, I'm seeing this other caste system coming up play. Based on a lawyer's painting of a picture. Based on perception or the color of one's skin or how much they got in the bank account can determine if they're charged or not. And many times the people making those charging decisions couldn't fight the way of a wet paper bag and they're trying to compensate for their own shortcomings. A lot of shit to deal with right now, yeah? Guess where I want to end tonight? Because it is 10.52, and I'm sure you guys are tired of hearing me ran right now. The caste systems don't leave us. But they can empower us. We can turn that negative into the positive. I guess the way I fought back was to work 12, 14, 16 hours a day. I don't know if that's the answer. And I know I take shit way too personal. I think we all gotta work on ourselves in some way, right? I don't know how to fight back. When we stop fighting back and we just accept somebody else's version of the facts, that's when life becomes tragic. And guys, I'm asking you tonight don't let life become tragic. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. All right, I am Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates. And we got to get some content done. Oh my god, do we need to get content done? Mm. Phone's been blowing off the hook. Can you say hook anymore? I don't know. So today, I'm talking about a couple things. Um, growing up Atlantic City and how that played a role in criminal defense and then the importance of creating appeals. 
And, you know, I got to tell you, in my old neighborhood, which was Ducktown, and, you know, if you're Ducktown in the 90s, let's just be clear about Atlantic City, okay? The world's playground. It was certainly the world's playground on the boardwalk and in the casinos, but in the actual city itself, it was like the world's nightmare. During my youth, we were ranked the seventh most dangerous city in the country. Seventh. Think about how many cities there are. And I will tell you, being a white kid in the hood was not fun. You learned a lot of lessons you did not need to learn. And I think there's a hardened exterior. And the one thing about Atlantic City that I'm eternally grateful for is lessons in life. Here's why. Pressure is a fact of life. In court, there's going to be pressure. In life, if you're intelligent, there's going to be pressure. But something about growing up in brutality makes those difficult days much easier. Today was a day when I'm going through cases where prosecutors are hitting evidence Hiding evidence is, to me, the most egregious thing you can do. When a prosecutor or a police officer destroys evidence and a prosecutor endorses that, we can't stand for that. Just can't. And I think back to some of the corruption of my youth. The brutality is more... You know, it really started with the Gary Grant Jr. murder. When Gary Grant was killed, we were nine years old. And we didn't know what was going on, but there was terror in the streets of AC. And then urban blight hit. We were the last Italian family in our neighborhood. And there were so many of my youth that ended up at Harbor Fields, and they would graduate to the New Jersey Department of Corrections or the grave. I mean, for the people in Atlantic City watching right now, the people in Jersey watching, and you know who I'm talking about, how many people did we grow up with that are no longer with us or who are incarcerated? And my question is this, should those people be incarcerated? Now, let's be real. There's a reason the prison system is what the prison system is. Some people belong in prison but some people are falsely accused and some people need a second chance. And I think that's especially true when we talk about the juvenile system. I always say with juvenile defendants, one of the reasons I take those cases at a lower rate is because I don't want them being a client of mine when they become adults. There's exceptions like Ethan Crumbly, which I don't think you could save a kid like that. But I'm going to go back to two people I knew. And I've made mention of this before. But it kind of hit me hard today. A juvenile's mother called me. And she wants me to take this case. And the first thing I'm asking in this case is can a public defender 
get the job done. Because there's times when a public defender or a court-appointed lawyer can get the job done. And if that's the case, I don't want to take money from someone. I do not want to take money from someone if they don't need me. And with juvie cases, it's such a dynamic. And I go back to somebody I grew up with. Somebody who has spent many years in the New Jersey Department of Corrections. Somebody who went to Harbor Fields. And this kid, young black kid, poor kid. He'd been through a lot of shit in his life. And he stole a car one day. And they get him for carjacking. Which was a huge thing in AC. First offense. And this kid served a year in Harbor Fields. And my problem with juvenile detention is this. I think sometimes you go in with a bachelor's in crim and you come out with a master's degree. You meet people in the system that you connect to. You meet people who are going to be part of your future with criminal enterprises. And this kid went in there and he was never the same. Now this was a kid who stole a car out of peer pressure. Let me be really clear on that. Many times the gang violence and the gang affiliations in Atlantic City they were not because somebody wanted to be part of a violent enterprise. It was out of fear. And when I say it was out of fear, what I mean is this. Many times where we grew up, if you did not affiliate with a gang, you were more vulnerable. Problem is this, once you were in, it was hard to get out. And this kid got involved with some people, not because he wanted to be part of the scene, but he wanted to be safe going home. And we had classes together in high school. He was a smart kid. And then one year, it all changed for him. And as I tracked him, I just see so many stays in prison. Like, he went from being somebody whose dream was being an English professor in college to someone that learned to write a great parole memo. And he, he did carjack. Here's my issue. There was a kid in Margate. Same offense. White kid from wealth. Same referees same everything in fact i would argue that the kid from margate which is a suburbs and if you follow me you know that's true kid from margate he had a much better defense lawyer and instead of doing a year in harbor fields this kid had to write a 250 word essay and he laughed about it and you know it just bothered me it was the haves versus the have-nots. And I learned at a young age that the ability of the criminal defense lawyer can make a huge difference in your future. 
And it shouldn't be like that. That's where we're at. And Atlantic City, again, being the brutal place it was. And by the way, if you were white in Atlantic City in the 90s, you saw some shit. You experienced some shit. You dealt with some shit. And anybody that tells you they didn't, or says, oh, it was no big deal, didn't live it. If you know what Pitney Village was like in 1992, raise your hand. And sometimes when I see prosecutors on the other side of the, and I see these people that are indignant and they're all about justice, I wonder if they've ever been through shit in their life. And that term shit is so subjective, right? But to be a good criminal defense lawyer, you got to want to fight. And what you learn throughout the years, what you learn with your education, strategy, there's ways to pick your spots. There's times to go full throttle. There's times to play things to the media. There's times to try to run somebody over. And there's times to plot and sit back. They can't teach you that in law school. Because criminal defense is about life. It's about analyzing. It's about studying. It's about strategy. At the end of the day, it's supposed to be about justice. And I think back to those two kids, and I always stayed away from criminal defense. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to be a civil lawyer because I thought the Margate kids had the right way of life and this is what you're supposed to do. And they screened civil litigation. And when things were rough, things were bad, and they were in 2016, let's be clear about that. You were broke. You were clueless. You were aimless. And Scott Grable changed my life. And when I got deeply involved with criminal defense, I'll say this. My uncle Matt and I talked on the phone. May he rest in peace. And I can't say uncle Matt and I were close. I just can't. But I looked to my uncle Matt and I looked to my uncle Sam. And they both approached life in two very different ways. Uncle Sam's one of the best people I ever knew. Uncle Matt was somebody who had a very interesting life. We'll leave it at that. And I said to Uncle Matt, you know, I'm really getting good at this criminal defense stuff, and um, I don't know. And Uncle Matt said, you can't run from who you are. Okay. Uncle Sam, brilliant man. He approached it differently. Uncle Sam said to me, and sometimes guys in the delivery... So, Bill, you experienced a lot of shit in your life. And I think in criminal defense, you could use that shit and make a positive change. It was the same way as saying you can't run from who you are, but it was said in such a way that it resonated with me. It's like, okay, I'm all in. You know, and I always studied the West Memphis 3 case. And that case still bothers me to this day. Jesse Miss Kelly, Jason Baldwin, Damien Eccles. I've read so many books. I've studied so many things. 
there were alleged confessions, should there have been a competency, should there have been a change of venue, what about the lost evidence, there's so many things that are a criminal tutorial in this, and then when I looked at the West Memphis 3 case, I realized how far we haven't come, because the kids were convicted based on small town media. And they became somewhat exonerated. And I say somewhat because they made an Alford plea. If you don't know what an Alford plea is, it's a unique plea that says, I'm going to plead guilty, but maintain my innocence. We don't have that in Michigan. In Arkansas, they do. And they only got to the point of an Alford plea because of big time media. Do we really know if these kids are guilty or not? I always said this about the West Memphis Stray, and we'll go deep into them another time. You couldn't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt if it was a fair trial. That term, fair trial, that's sometimes an oxymoron. And you need to understand something as a criminal defense lawyer. And I want to scream this at the top of my lungs tonight. Winning the case or getting the most beneficial plea should always be your two top priorities. But the journey to get there, that's where shit gets twisted. I have no problem waiving a preliminary examination. I do not need to create more evidence at a prelim. Sometimes you do. But generally, you don't. Stataway motions. Missing evidence motions. Playing the media properly. One of our jobs as a criminal defense lawyer is to create appellate rights. By creating appellate rights, you're giving body blows to the prosecution. And remember something, guys. We lose motions, we win trials. Sometimes you're filing a motion to file a motion to create that issue for an appeal. And here's a news flash. If there was a problem with the preliminary examination and you do not file a motion to quash, you waive that right forever. Keep that in mind for the people that run prelims all the time. Now, with that being said, there's some media cases I'm involved with right now where motion to quash may not be relevant. Because if one, well, I'll be careful what I say right now, but I will say this. you got to think outside the box to level the playing field. And far too often, we see prosecutors that are more interested in playing to the media than playing to the justice system. We gotta ask ourselves, if somebody has immigration issues, do we really need to bring that case if it's not assaulted behavior? We need to ask if there's companion civil litigation and somebody's gonna make millions of dollars, did I, the prosecutor, get it wrong? We need to ask questions. If evidence was destroyed, you didn't get the whole picture. Should we be in the courtroom? I want you to understand something, because there's going to be things happening in the near future. 
I never started a fight in my life. Never have, never will. It always confused me when somebody hit me first for no apparent reason. But the ghetto taught you it is better to hit back and lose than to hope you don't get hit again. A punk doesn't hit back. A warrior swings back in the face of defeat. A warrior turns the game around. And when certain people care more about their political future than the criminal justice system, we got a fucking problem on our hands. So if I say something in the media, it's because the other person punched first. This is not about me. It's about something bigger than me. And guys, let me be clear. The system is bigger than us. It's more important than us. We are just pawns in the system. And the question becomes, do you want to fight or do you want to run? If you want to run, there are many nine to five jobs with no confrontation and nice 401ks that will be available to you. If you want to fight, you better get ready for some sleepless nights and you better be ready to punch back. Creating a pellet issue is one of the ways we fought punch back. I'll end by saying this. There are those days I wonder if life would have been easier if we had money and safety. And I never want my boy to experience some of the shit I experienced. But there are days when I am so eternally grateful to being a kid that was trapped next to Patsy Wiles in Pitney Village. The thing about fighting somebody that came from nothing is they're not scared to have nothing. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Former client contacts me. And we stayed friends after the case was over, right? Got the case dismissed. We became friends. I felt bad for this guy. Like, he was... He, he breaks up with this girl. He's extremely devastated. And I, I start making jokes, which... Man, it doesn't go over well. You know me. Oh, she broke my heart. Like, alright. Yeah. <laughs> you know? What? And you're looking at her like, eh, she's okay, but I mean, you can do better. Then you get aggravated, right? You're trying to solve people's problems. Like, dude, you know what? You can throw a dart in a bar and do better. And he's... You start trying to give him tough love and this and that. And then finally you realize this poor soul, he just wants her. So you wish him well, and you just listen to him. But, like, when he's talking, you're kind of, like, typing and texting and doing other things, but you're lending an ear. And this guy thinks he's, like, your best friend. And by the way, he is not on social media, so he'll never figure it out. But 
you know, this is the guy, and we all know this guy, right? You see him a couple times a year, and he wants you to be the best man at his wedding. It's that poor guy. He's not a lot of friends, right? But you're nice. Nice guy. Sure, I got my moments, right? But So he calls me, and his cousin died. Oh, man, I'm really sorry. It'd be an honor if you would come to the funeral. Huh. Now... <laughs> Alright, let me explain about the funeral. Let me explain about the deceased. The deceased grew up in New York. And he was a Michigan import. Is that what you call it? Yeah. Like me? Yeah. And it's during COVID. And this is like during the heat of COVID. I know you think COVID was fake. You know, you got COVID yourself. But, okay. The sniffle. This is during like COVID crazy times, right? You couldn't leave the house. And this guy says, hey, my cousin died. Will you come to the funeral? And I, God forgive me. I'm thinking this is like Junior Corrado getting a furlough, Uncle June. Like, oh, my God, I have to leave the house. The funeral's like three hours away. So I call Matt. Hey, former client, remember him? No. Okay, anyway, his cousin died. He wants me to come to the funeral. Matt's like, oh, shit, can I figure out a way to come with you? Figure it out. And he couldn't. So I am driving to this funeral three hours away, and um, you ever see the pallbearer with David Schwimmer, who was Bill Abernathy? That was this, right? Matt's trying to go to the funeral. I feel bad for the guy's loss, but I'm glad to get out of the house. I got the Spotify work, and I'm hitting the highway, and um, I'm on the phone with Danielle Cattery, may she rest in peace. And Danielle's, like, losing her shit with me. Oh, my God, you're going to a funeral three hours away. How dumb are you? I guess you're flipping the red hair now. And, um, I get to the funeral. And, I mean, I'm texting my people. Drew, you don't remember, but you got some taxes. I'm sure. Matt was getting taxes. Pete Winter and I were tight at the time he was getting taxes. Like, hey, guys, I'm going to this funeral, and I'm out of the house, and blah, blah, blah. So... I go to the funeral, and I'm shaking hands with people. Hey, how you doing? I'm Bill. Nice to meet you. Sorry for your loss. And, like, there's these camps at the funeral, right? Like the Hatfields and McCoys. You go up to these one people, and you shake their hands. You go up to this other family, shake their hands. I don't realize there's this riff. And one of the people come up to me like, Hey, why'd you talk to those son of a bitches? Like, what? Then you realize... That these people are at this funeral, they don't all like each other. They don't. But they're here at this funeral, and they probably have seen yours since 1987, right? But here they are at this funeral, and they're mad that me, who is this very important person apparently, I didn't realize I was important at this thing. Um, right, Mike P, you're right, I was supposed to fist bump because it was COVID, not shake hands. So I don't know, I'm... <sighs> I'm looking around, and it's very awkward, and I'm seeing sports memorabilia, and apparently the deceased was a big Mets fan, huge Mets fan, right? Mm -hmm. And there's pictures of him with George Foster and Dave Kingman, and then there's pictures of the 86 Mets. So let me explain something to you. This will go somewhere. The 86 Mets won it all, and arguably they should have been a dynasty. There was drug problems, there was alcohol problems, there was all sorts of shit going on with this team, but they win it all. Foster and Kingman were great players, but they were on the Mets before they became great. 
and they were there, like, when the Mets were horrible, when the Mets were the worst team in baseball, Kingman and Foster and Pat Zachary and people like that, they stood out from the crowd. And here's this guy, Craig, with these pictures of these great players on these bad teams. So I'm thinking, oh, all right, a lot of Mets stuff going on. And, you know, it was weird because Matt McManus got in my head. He was texting about this whole medical recovery article he saw. People were stealing organs from people and stuff. So I go up to the casket, and I'm like, you know, saying the prayer. And I'm thinking, is this poor guy? Do you have an organ stolen? I mean, I kick it out of my head. And these people are talking. These camps are all pissed off and whatever. Okay. Cool memorabilia. I'm going to the bathroom. I go to the bathroom. This is when shit really starts getting weird. Despite it being a funeral, people were using drugs and having sex in the bathroom. And I go to the bathroom, I see this guy like rolling lines of cocaine in the church bathroom. And I'm thinking, okay, that's weird. So I, to get away from the drug user, go to a stall. And I hear this moaning, right? And I realized two people are having sex in this stall. And I'm thinking to myself, what did I walk into here? So the coke guy, he runs out. These people are hooking up. I go to wash my hands. I'm trying to make it really quick. And the one guy comes up and he goes, okay. You caught me cheating my wife. What will it take for you to keep your mouth shut? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm slowly walking out the door like Homer Simpson going into the bushes. Number one, I would never get involved in that. Number two, I don't know these people, so why would they think that me being armed with information would be critical? It's weird, right? So I go back out to the funeral, trying to get these visuals out of my head. And I see this one funeral arrangement with a big Boston Red Sox mural on it. And I'm talking to one of the people. And I said, I thought Craig was a Mets fan. Somebody sent him this Boston Red Sox thing. And they tell me, oh, well, that's Cousin Maury. He's an asshole. Like, okay. Explain to me the Red Sox thing. Well, he hated Craig. So he put a card in there, I'll see you in hell, and he put the Red Sox thing on there because Craig was a Mets fan. Now at this point in the game, I've seen coke use, adulterous sex in the bathroom, relatives at each other's throats, and somebody sending a muro of an opposing team. Matt's telling me at the organs, I'm just going to be out of the house. And there's always that marginal person at the funeral. <laughs> the person nobody knows, but they make a ruckus. And I guess this one person nobody knew stepped over to flowers, and the flowers fall to the ground. And then there's this girl. There's this girl, and... You ever been to a funeral when somebody's just dressed inappropriately? I mean, I'm there with a suit and tie on, because, you know, it's a funeral, right? Okay. And there's this girl that's dressed like she's going to a club. And, um, 
And she goes, hey, what's up? And I'm just looking at her. She's like, I can see you're checking me out. And I want to say to her, no, I'm not checking you out. But I mean, you're dressed like you're going to a club in New York. But I just walk away. And I go sit down. And the cousin who was my former client starts speaking. And the cousin's emotional, right? And I'm like, oh, man, this, this really sucks for him. But I'm also texting my people, which is highly inappropriate on my end. Like, ah, this poor guy's crying. Uh, this is really tough for him. I don't know what to do. Maybe I give him a pat on the back or buy him a beer. I don't know. And the cousin goes, we have somebody very special here to speak today. It's somebody you all know. He's driven a long way to be here. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, shit, who's here? Bill Amadeo, would you please come up here and impart us with some words to give the eulogy? What? So, I'm whispering in his ear, dude, what the hell are you doing? He goes, well, I invited you. You said you'd come. So he invited me to the funeral. Now, okay. I didn't think I was giving the eulogy. So I text Matt, and I text him... WTF, they're having me do the eulogy. And Matt just responds with a bunch of laugh faces. I don't know what to do. And I start thinking, all right, I remember when George Costanza was speaking to Mrs. Peterman, he was talking about the Yankees. And I'm sitting there, and I'm staring at this room in this church, a couple hundred people are there, big funeral. And I'm staring at these people, and they're looking at me to give these words of wisdom. And I don't know what to do. What do I'm looking around with Kate. And Mike, you said I'm quick with it. I see the sports memorabilia. I saw Dave Kingman, George Foster, 86 Mets. As, okay. What are you going to do? Have you ever been in this situation when you have to speak? You don't know what to do in the speech. And these people are grieving and counting on you to say something meaningful. I don't know this poor guy. In fact, my former client, I didn't really know. And forgive me, but I want to get out of the house. And I drove three hours to a funeral, trying to be a nice guy, but also trying to get out of house arrest during COVID. So, I'm sitting up there and I'm thinking of David Schwimmer and the Paul Bearer. Who is Bill Abernathy? Who's Craig? So I say, you know, with Craig, there's so many things I could say. And, and I realize, this is like the first time I gave a closing in court. I think I'm saying something very meaningless, but these people are like, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. But I'm kind of running with it now. And I say, all things in life that are worthwhile, they take time and effort. And while it may sound trite, I think we need to compare this to the New York Mets. Craig loved the Mets, and let's face it, it's easy to love the 86 Mets, am I right? And these people are like, yeah, that's right, it's easy to love the 86 Mets. Like, okay, am I right? And I don't know why, I said, like, can I get an amen? And these people, the whole amen! You love the 86 Mets! <laughs> so I got him, right? I'm like, okay. Maybe I could bullshit through this that I don't know who this poor guy is. And I got these people screaming in this church. 
It's like a revival about the 86 Mets. But now, I got him. Eyes are locked in. Thinking, here's what we got. Now let's run with it. I said, what about those lean years, huh? Hmm? What about when the Mets traded George for George Foster and Dave Kingman? We saw the pictures over there. We know Craig loved those players, right, guys? And they are roaring. And you people, oh, he's saying what needs to be said. And I'm thinking, a little bit of knowledge of sports memorabilia is going a long way right now, right? So, I said, when George Foster came from the Reds, you Met fans thought that was it, right? You were going to win, but it didn't happen. Was it George's fault? No. What about Dave Kingman? Remember when Dave Kingman was traded in the Midnight Massacre? Then he came back and he led the league in home runs? Who remembers that? And these people are screaming, this guy, he's saying what's on Craig's mind. And I'm just talking about the Mets during bad years. And I'm thinking, okay, can I keep it going? Like, what, can I exit on that high note, right? Can I get the hell out of here? I said, what do we take from Dave Kingman and George Foster? <laughs> what do we take, guys? Here's what we take. And here's what I want you to take today. When you think about your loved one. They weren't there in the 86 Mets, were they? Kingman wasn't there. He was playing in Oakland. And then what happened? After hitting 40 home runs, he gets cut. Foster. Gone mid-season 86. And they gave their blood, sweat, and tears. They don't have a ring, do they? They don't have a ring! And the, the tears are like flowing. Shit, okay. Because they didn't have a ring. They were on the team. But the Mets won. And if you really are a Mets fan, you know that Kingman and Foster... All those guys, those lean years, the Pat Zacharys. Zachary! They played a role in that 86 team, didn't they? So it's not all about what's on paper. It's not all about what you can look up on Wikipedia. It's about what built the foundation. And that's what I want you guys to take when you think about Craig. And the camps are coming together. The people that are hating each other and they're hugging each other. And the guy committing adultery with his third cousin in the friggin' bathroom. Or like tears are coming out. And the guy using the cocaine. I think he's gonna get sober now. And I stood there. Thank you. And thank you for allowing me to speak today. And I'm texting mad, I'm like, I think I got away with this shit. I don't <laughs> Anyway. Um Yeah, that happened. So, moral to the story is you ever get stuck doing a eulogy that you were not prepared for? Having knowledge of sports memorabilia can go a long way. Anything I add? Right. I think I hit the point. <laughs> Alright, I'm Bill Amadeo. Enjoy your weekend, guys. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the 
the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.